Ladies and gentlemen, children and pets, gather round, gather round. It's time to hear the story of Thanksgiving. A long time ago, in 1620, a group of people called the Pilgrims left England in search of a place where they could worship God as they pleased. About a hundred of these pilgrims boarded a big ship called the Mayflower. The men, women, and children were excited to reach their new home. It was a hard journey, but eventually they arrived in America where they met some quote-unquote Indians. These folks were very friendly and helped the pilgrims survive in their strange new land by teaching them how to fish and plant vegetables. Then one day, to celebrate, the English invited their neighbors, the Indians, to a big Thanksgiving meal. And now, every year, we sit down for a big Thanksgiving meal ourselves to commemorate that wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen, what I just said is a bunch of bullshit. I think the myth of peaceful coexistence is one of the most problematic aspects. This is Keisha James. The Thanksgiving story is based on her ancestors, the Wampanoag people. But the true story is a little bit different from the legend. It absolves the pilgrims of what they did to my ancestors. And the fact that children are indoctrinated into it at a very early age is incredibly insidious. I don't know about you guys, but I remember being in grade school and they get us to reenact the Thanksgiving meal. We make little buckles for our shoes and belts and we glue a bunch of feathers onto a paper headband to play what they told us was Indians. So we play and laugh and that's the story that they told us. The pilgrims and the native people were friends. At some point, Thanksgiving became a legend that defined the American way of life. But it turns out the continuation of this sugar-coated fairy fail was strategic. And the people behind its ingratiation to society succeeded in covering up one of the biggest cheats in our history. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we're looking at Thanksgiving, an American story designed to hide the uncomfortable truth. In the run-up to American Thanksgiving, people all across the country are trying to get the juiciest, most plump turkeys in the store. It's one of the biggest holidays of the year. We've all been told the story. Pilgrims, Indians, big meal. We have it drilled into us as kids. But then we grow up, become a little bit wiser, and kind of realize that things may not be as they seem. That maybe a big friendly feast wasn't exactly what went down all those years ago. So, this is the story of what really happened between those religious newcomers from Europe and the native people who first inhabited this land. It's a story of deceit, lies, and war. It's also a story of how an entire history was rewritten by the cheaters. How a legend was created and how this legend was used as a political tool to silence an entire community. I specialize in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. This is David Silverman, professor of history at George Washington University in the U.S. 
I've been working with Wampanoag people for the better part of 20 years. And what they told me is that every Thanksgiving, it seemed as if the broader American public was at best ignoring their historical plight and at worst, reveling in it. You see, way before America was even, quote unquote, discovered or even called America, it was home to hundreds of Native American tribes. As best we can tell, Native people had been in southern New England for at least 12,000 years. And to be clear, it wasn't called southern New England then. There was no England over there in the first place. It's made up of the modern-day states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. What we now call Massachusetts is home to the Wampanoag Nation. And during the 1500s, they'd met their fair share of European explorers. But these encounters weren't exactly friendly. Oftentimes, though, violence stemmed from Europeans seizing Native people. Now, sometimes they kidnapped indigenous people because they intended to bring them back to Europe for training as interpreters and guides for future voyages. That was bad enough. At other times, Europeans seized on native people in order to transport them back to Europe for sale into slavery. It got worse for the Wampanoag in the aftermath of these encounters, when thousands of them started dying. Native people suffered wave after wave after wave of these terrible diseases. The Native people were terrified. They had no idea what was killing them. All they knew was that, one by one, their people were dying horrible deaths. We're talking about terrible diseases like smallpox, the plague. It was devastating. The Wampanoag called the period of time between 1616 and 1619 the Great Dying because they lost so many of their people. We're suffering through a uh, modern-day COVID pandemic, which has wiped out a fraction of 1% of the population and has thrown our society into convulsion. Now imagine how we've been feeling over this pandemic, but much, much worse for the Wampanoag because they didn't have any real understanding of what this disease was. They lost somewhere between half and three quarters of their population, which is a loss of population that for modern day people is inconceivable. And believe it or not, that wasn't their only problem. Their dwindling population leaves the Wampanoag vulnerable to their rivals the Narragansetts. The Narragansetts then took advantage of this situation. The Narragansetts, who live just to the west of the Wampanoag, they haven't been as affected by disease like their neighbors because they didn't have much face-to-face -face interaction with these outsiders. So by 1620, the Narragansetts have become a major threat. And the Wampanoag, of course, they can't have that. They need a way to shift the power balance back to themselves. Then one day, everything changes for the Wampanoag. In November of 1620, a three-masted merchant ship arrives in Cape Cod. And it was carrying roughly 100 passengers plus crew. Men, women, and children. These passengers 
were Puritan separatists from England. They separated from the Church of England in order to follow what they considered to be the true faith. Initially, they had tried to make a go of it in the Netherlands, but they found themselves to be cultural outliers. So they boarded their ship called the Mayflower and set sail for America. Its original destination was not southern New England. The original destination was the mouth of the Hudson River. But supplies were running short, and knowing that Native people in southern New England had been devastated by this epidemic and that therefore some of their land was available for the taking, the Mayflower passengers decided to drop anchor there. But it was winter when they arrived. You got to imagine what these winters are like. We've had years of global warming. So nowadays, what we think is cold is really pretty mild compared to what they experienced. The winter of 1620 was bitterly cold. They're already uh, suffering malnutrition, salt poisoning, psychological stress. They're hungry, poisoned, and stressed. And on top of that, freezing their asses off. And within the first couple of months of of landing, they lose half their numbers. At this point, there are about 50 of them left. And by the time spring rolls around, they're in pretty bad shape. So they go exploring on Wampanoag land. The Wampanoag themselves are living further inland to shelter from the weather. So the English, they're just roaming freely. They find some Wampanoag graves. Now, one would think that having found these graves, they would simply leave them alone because it's a universal uh, human value that one does not disrupt uh, grave sites. They're sacred in, in every culture around the world. Nevertheless, these English newcomers, in part because they did not respect indigenous people, they considered them to be culturally lesser than them as savages. They disinterred these graves. And they find some very valuable items, like shell beads. Their mucking about also uh, led them to a series of Wampanoag underground storage bins in which the Wampanoag stashed their corn seed for the next planting season. So what do you think they did? Yep, they took the Wampanoag corn seed. The Wampanoag had been keeping an eye on the English from a distance. They knew the English had guns, and they knew the English were barely surviving. So in 1621, they hatched the plan. The sachem, or chief Usamequin, thought it was worth a gamble to reach out to these newcomers in order to fend off the Narragansett threat. Now, remember, the Wampanoag population is much smaller in number than it used to be and they're still fighting with the Narragansett. So the leader of the Wampanoag people, Usamequin, decides to propose a strategic alliance with the newcomers. I mean, after all, they had some big-ass guns and would be pretty useful in fending off their ambitious rivals. This leader of the Wampanoag, Usamequin, he goes to meet the leader of the English colony to see if there's a deal to be made. They meet outside one of the cabins that the English have set up on Wampanoag land. There's no majesty to this place at all. It might look like the beginnings of a lumber camp. 
is nothing like the Wampanoag homes that have been perfected over the last few thousand years. I mean, these things are a sight to behold. They're weatherproof, round structures that are made from wide sheets of bark. And inside, they're decorated with mats woven from plants dyed in various colors. The English do their best to create some diplomatic largesse here and you know, they pull out some wall hangings and elaborate pillows and they have a couple of their men blow trumpets. <laughs> so they try to make these dinky little cabins seem fancy. And once they're done tooting these little trumpets, Usamequin and the leader of the English, John Carver, meet. We don't know all that much about John Carver except that he is the leader of a community that is on the brink of dissolution. He's a man of deep, abiding faith. We do know what the English think of Usamequin, though, because they wrote about him in their records. They said he was a strong, lusty man, which is to say a man full of vigor. And through the strained translations of the Wampanoag messengers and their own deductions, they established that he's a respected leader. Native people paid him rapt attention whenever he spoke. He conducted himself in diplomatic settings with dignity. Naturally, John and Usamequin are wary of each other. They lay down their arms and they try to sweeten each other up a bit with some gifts. They offer Usamequin some strong drink. But they've not let their guard down the two sides exchange hostages in the event that things go wrong. And then they get down to business, which isn't easy considering the translators have never done this kind of thing before. They do reach an agreement that they will defend one another and trade with one another. The bottom line of it is you protect me and I'll protect you. It's the beginning of a decades-long alliance but an uneasy alliance. Slowly, the Wampanoag realized that this alliance isn't quite as it seems, and maybe their agreement isn't really in their favor. That's coming up after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Usamequin and John Carver keep their word. The two parties protect each other, and they trade with one another. The English protect the Wampanoag from the Narragansett, and the Wampanoag teach the English how to survive. Fish, hunt, plant crops. The Wampanoag even let the English sow crops, raise livestock, and build houses on Wampanoag land. These folks are basically keeping the English alive. And later that year, after the English have their first successful corn harvest, they celebrate with a Thanksgiving meal. The English declare days of Thanksgiving after all kinds of events, when it rains, after a drought, when a good harvest comes in, or after a military victory. The English are ecstatic, 
they survive. And they start shooting their guns into the air with glee. And the Wampanoag, of course, honoring their pack, they rush to see why the English are shooting these guns and acting crazy. Are they being attacked? The Wampanoag spend the next three days nearby just in case. I gotta say, at this point, the Wampanoag people are some pretty gracious hosts to the English. But it is their land, so they do expect things to be done a certain way. When the Wampanoags and other native people welcome the English into their territory, it's with the expectation that these newcomers are joining native society. Kind of makes sense, right? There are only 50 English folks, and the indigenous people have been living there for 12,000 years. In other words, that they'll use the land in ways that are acceptable to native people, and that when it comes to disputes over criminal matters or theft or, or what have you, that these matters will be resolved in a way that's consistent with Native principles. But the English say, mm, nah, we don't agree to that. They contend that when they purchase Native land, they are buying the land from out of Native societies. And that now the land and all the people on it belong to English jurisdiction. This logic stems from the English assumption of superiority by virtue of their status as Christian civilized people and the Wampanoags and other native people as pagan savages. The natives let the English build houses on the land, but they still consider it to be native land. I mean, when I buy a house, that house is in the state that it's in it still follows that state's laws. I don't just get to enforce my own laws because I've got a house there. We all know that. They don't believe that precludes Native people from continuing to hunt, fish, and cross that territory. But the English consider that to be trespassing. So this is a recipe for future disputes. And on top of that, the English don't fence in their animals. Their horses, their cows feast on Native American corn, beans, and squash. Their pigs would dig up Native American clam banks and thus would ruin resources that Native people needed for their daily sustenance. So the Natives would kill the animals to protect their crops. The English would then claim that Native people had to compensate them for destroying their private property, a notion that made Native people scratch their heads. After all, the English didn't compensate them for killing deer. Over the next few years, more ships arrived, which led to more Wampanoag dying from diseases brought over by the people on the ships. The Native population was diminishing at the same time that the English population was growing at an absolutely astounding rate which led to a shift in the power dynamic. What the English would do is they would assert that they had been wronged by Native people, correctly or incorrectly, and then demand compensation. That compensation usually came in the form of land. Then, when the English aren't satisfied with just the land, they begin to force Native people into servitude in response to their purported criminal activities. Native people say frequently that some of their English neighbors are unfairly accusing them of crimes like, say, trespass or joyriding horses 
in order to force land sessions or force them into temporary servitude. And the Wampanoag realized that the agreement between Usamequin and John Carver, mm, something ain't right. It wasn't as fair and as clear as they thought it was. The agreement was an oral one that was only written down later. So we don't have a record of what the Wampanoag thought the agreement was, only English records of what had allegedly been agreed to. When it comes to understanding this agreement between the Wampanoags and English, we have to make a distinction between the English record of this agreement and the Wampanoag understanding of what that agreement was. This is very important. You see, the English records were written to convince people back in England that the colony was successful. They also wanted to make it seem as if they were the dominant party in this relationship. Now, if you take a look at the English record of this agreement, it's clear that there were clauses that Usamequin would have never agreed to. It asserted that the Wampanoags were now subjects of King James. Well, none of that makes any sense to Wampanoag people. They don't know what a king is, they don't know who James is, and they have no word for subjecthood. The Wampanoag don't give a damn about a King James. Now, you know they would never sign themselves over to some faraway king that they'd never heard of or met. The English agreement says that if the Wampanoags commit any crimes against the English, they will turn over those wrongdoers to English justice. If Usamequin even tried to turn over one of his men to the English, his own men would probably kill him, and he knew that. It's impossible to know whether Usamequin didn't understand these clauses or maybe if they were made up by the English afterwards. It seems to me like the English never let go of this preconception that the Wampanoag are savages, that they're beneath the English, and that they should be subjugated. What the English say is they are trying to institute a Christian civilized order in a savage pagan land. Digging up graves and stealing from the dead seems pretty savage to me. But nonetheless, the English launch Christian missions. And these missions challenge both Native culture, but also Native political structure. Because when Native people adopt Christianity, English missionaries encourage them to cut off their tribute payments, or in other words, their taxes, and certainly to end their deference to Native American leaders like Usamequin, and his sons. And so the structure of the Wampanoag nation that has existed for thousands of years is now being torn apart. Then one day in 1636, 16 years after the Mayflower washed up on their shores, the Wampanoag hear of a war that's broken out in Connecticut, the Pequot War. The Pequot is another Native American tribe that got into a big dispute with the English and refused to submit to their version of the law. Basically, the Pequots accused some of the English of kidnapping, and the English accused some of the Pequots of murder, and it all ended up with the Pequot village being massacred by the English. They set the homes inside on fire. One by one, the houses in the Pequot village go up in flames, and the people inside begin to flee. But the English attackers are ready. And then form 
a ring of gunmen and a ring of bowmen who shoot down everybody who tries to escape the flames. It's a massacre. They kill hundreds of people in this attack, most of them women, children, and the elderly. As if this show of force wasn't enough, the English intend to completely subjugate the Pequot. The English and their native allies hunt down the Pequot survivors and enslave them, sending some of them to servitude in the West Indies and enslaving others in the New England colonies. The majority of the Pequot population is wiped out, and the English settlers have achieved what they set out to do, to show indigenous people that America is no longer theirs. And what do they do? The English celebrate with one of their Thanksgiving feasts. Over in Wampanoag country, the natives realized that these newcomers, who were once on the brink of death and couldn't survive without help, are now strong enough to wipe the Wampanoag out like they did the Pequot. A critical mass of Wampanoag society finally concludes that it was time to expel the English from native southern New England. Remember Usamequin, the Wampanoag leader who signed the deal with the English? Well, his son Pometacom, or King Philip, as he's known to the English, is now in charge. And he decides that the Wampanoag have had enough. He tells the lieutenant governor of Rhode Island his people are ready to go to war with the English. He said, when my father met your ancestors, he was like a great man, and your ancestors were like a little child. And though he was stronger than you, he gave you land on which to plant, he protected you, and taught you how to live in this land. And now here we are, 50-plus years later, And you're like the great man, and we're like the little child. And yet, you haven't returned our largesse. You're ungrateful guests in our country. But the English aren't willing to adapt to their adopted land. They keep pushing a clause from the 1621 agreement between Usamequin and John Carver. They went in to Wampanoag territory and seized three Wampanoag men who they accused of murdering another Wampanoag in Wampanoag country. The English demand that the Wampanoag turn over these men to be punished under English law. The Wampanoags refused. They said, this is an internal matter. It has nothing to do with you. We have our own uh, methods of justice. But now the English are going to force the issue. And they execute these three men after a trial that most Wampanoag people thought was bogus. The Wampanoag are like, clearly the English are going to do whatever they want to do. Maybe they'll even try to execute Pometacom and take his land. No, 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 no. For the Wampanoag, that is the last straw. And in June of 1675, King Philip's War begins. This war devastates both the English population and the Native American population. Something like one out of every five Englishmen of fighting age lose their lives during this war. And the Native population, they take an even bigger hit. It's considered to be one of the deadliest wars in American history. 
The war effectively comes to an end in late summer of 1676. And that's when uh, the English capture and kill uh, Pometacom, sever his head, and then post it outside the gates of, of Plymouth Colony, the very site where they had feasted with his father in that storied first Thanksgiving more than 50 years earlier. And there it was, a brutal end to a very uneasy alliance. And from that point forward, indigenous people in southern New England were going to live under English dominance. And the English, they get exactly what they want. They were able to claim massive, massive swaths of native territory from people they defeated or even native people who had allied with them and were no longer in a position uh, to resist them engrossing the land. The English enslaved thousands of indigenous adults and children who they captured during the war. Some of whom they sold off to other places, but many of whom uh, they put to work in English settings in, in southern New England. The English continued to erase indigenous culture. Most of these native people have to adopt Christianity, like it or not, in order to make it in this world. In other words, it was precisely as Pometacom had feared. So you can see that Thanksgiving is actually a pretty insignificant part of this story. But somehow it's become the main takeaway from this period of time. After the break, I'll talk to Keisha James, a member of the Wampanoag Nation, to find out why the Thanksgiving story was made up and what purpose this legend serves. So we've established what actually happened between the Native Americans and the English settlers, but we wanted to understand why Thanksgiving became such a big deal and how it affects Wampanoag people today. So we got in touch with Keisha James, for whom this story is especially relevant. I'm an enrolled member of the Wampanoag tribe of Gay Hedaquina. Um, I'm a youth volunteer and archivist for United American Indians of New England, and I'm one of the lead organizers of the National Day of Mourning protest in Plymouth. Do you call it National Day of Mourning, Thanksgiving? What should we be calling it? I call it National Day of Mourning, and I think it should be called National Day of Mourning because it is a day of mourning for all Native peoples across the country. Keisha has an even more personal connection with the National Day of Mourning. The year is 1970. The state decides that it wants to hold a banquet to commemorate the 350th anniversary of the arrival of the pilgrims. <laughs> and they decide last minute that they need a token Wampanoag person. And they reach out to my grandfather. So my grandfather went away and he came back to them with a speech. And the speech told the truth about Thanksgiving and talked about how actually, no, the Wampanoag did not do well after the pilgrims came. And it wasn't a cause for celebration for us. And the state said, this is unacceptable. <laughs> we'll write a speech for you and you can deliver it. And my grandfather refused to have words put into his mouth. He and a group of local native peoples got together and decided they were going to hold a protest on Thanksgiving Day. The question we have to ask ourselves is, if Thanksgiving was such a tiny, insignificant part of the story, then why did the state turn it into such a big event? The reason why they needed um, sort of English-speaking, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant settlers to hold up as a national myth was because at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, 
you have an influx of immigrants coming from Italy and mm-hmm. Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and places like that. And so it was also a way for Mayflower descendants and the descendants of the Puritans to assert that they were more American than these incoming immigrants mm-hmm. and you know, their ancestors were here longer and they're a higher class of immigrants. So Thanksgiving was used as a tool to spread an insidious message to the American public. Who do you think benefits the most from this sanitized version of Thanksgiving being told? I think it serves sort of the two main groups that benefit from American imperialism, which is, of course, settlers and the United States government. It is a way of making the settler colonial project seem brave and seem like exploration and adventure and a way of assuaging white guilt. It's interesting how America uses stories, fake, totally made up stories, which not only cover up horrific crimes of the past, but they also evoke feelings of national pride to the extent that a proud American public becomes complicit in the lie without even knowing it. When it comes to commerce, National Day of Mourning, that ain't gonna get it. There's obviously money in selling turkeys and stuffing in cranberry sauce and marketing costumes for pageants Mm -hmm. and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which always features, you know, giant balloons, usually of a pilgrim. I mean, she's right. Think about it. We've got the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. That thing costs over $10 million, and over half a billion dollars is spent on turkeys each year. There's money to be made from this legend. So sadly, I don't think a rebrand to the National Day of Mourning is going to happen anytime soon. There's this quote, I forget who said it, but a Native man said that when the last tree is cut down, the last fish eaten, and the last stream poisoned, only then will you realize that you cannot eat money. And I think that speaks to the fact that the settler colonial project is always hungry and will always be hungry until the last moment. The actions of the English still affect the Wampanoag people to this day. The biggest thing that still affects us today is land and the fact that we don't have it. Mm So I can only speak for the Aquinawampanog. Um, our homelands are uh, Noepi, which is Martha's Vineyard, as well as uh, surrounding islands. In 1987, we received something called federal recognition, which means that the United States government recognizes us as a sovereign nation within the United States. But in order to receive federal recognition, which is crucial for like federal funding and access to the Indian Health Service and things like that, um, we had to give up our claims to the majority of the land of Martha's Vineyard, and we were given a pittance. And so we're forced to grapple with the issue of what does it mean to be a sovereign nation without land? Yeah, because that's not really sovereignty, yeah. is it? Plus, we're so tied to our land and our cultures that essentially the colonists took away an, an ancestor and a relation of ours. A whole lot of damage has been done, and the impacts are still felt today. So you gotta wonder, what could possibly be done to repair this cheat? Honestly, the only way would be land back, which literally means give us back our land. I mean, if if the return of native lands is the atonement, that's a that's that's a tough assignment, right? Because 
These folks right. ain't giving Martha's Vineyard back. Correct. Until we receive some form of liberation or until we get our lands back, there are things we can do to materially make our conditions better under colonialism until we receive liberation. I think that's what National Day of Mourning is. So folks, there you have it. The Thanksgiving myth served its purpose and continues to serve its purpose of making American history seem fair and just and a lot less bloody than it really is. It holds people up who shouldn't be celebrated. It's kind of easy for us to perpetuate this cheat. So don't repeat the old lie. Instead, you can set the record straight by sharing this episode with your friends and family and have conversations about things that are seemingly difficult but are enlightening. If you do want to learn more, you can go to uaine.org, which is the website for the United American Indians of New England. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. He asked me if I'm aware that my husband is being investigated for espionage. And talk about being able to knock, you think you can be knocked over with a feather. I said, what? You know, Michael might be a lot of things, but involved in espionage? Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Ennis Bowen. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. 